0: Stand for the reading of God's word, and again, I just want to encourage everybody to get in God's word on your own. And I think these discipleship groups are really going to help us to, to just. Dig into God's word because that's what changes a heart is God's word. Haggai. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins, now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvest little. You ate, but you never had enough. You drank, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God.
1: Amen. You can remain standing for just one more moment. We're going to do our memory verse uh, out of the book of Haggai. This month is uh, where we're going to be, and we encourage you to meditate on this verse. So let's read this verse together. It's Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. It says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, a chance to come before your word and let it speak to our lives. Father, we acknowledge that it is uh, easy um, in just the busyness of life, and the busyness of a new year, to be focused on so many other things other than you, but we are so grateful for all those that have gathered here and that are gathering in churches, uh, as churches around the world have already gathered because we, we come acknowledging where Our greatest needs are truly met. They are met by you and in your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we confess it is really easy for us to turn for our satisfaction and joy and pleasure and delight to all kinds of things of this world and to be focused on our own selfish desires. And so, God, it's it's a blessing to come before your word, to submit ourselves to it, and to trust in you, you you and you alone, because you are the one who saves, you are the one who redeems, you're the one who restores, and we trust in you today. Bless us as we come before your word, and may it speak into our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Over the last few months or so, uh, Amber and I have been reading uh, a a novel uh, written by uh, R.J. Palacio called Wonder. They turned it into a movie. You may have have seen it or read that book. It's about a, a child... Uh, named August who has had a number of medical conditions uh, including a number of facial abnormalities and so because of that his family homeschooled him but going into fifth grade they really felt like going to, to school in, in person somewhere would be beneficial and so they put him in this uh, private school starting in fifth grade and the book kind of chronicles that first year back in, or in, into school into this middle school and one of the things that didn't make the, the movie that's in the book is this scene where uh, they realize that August needs hearing aids. Uh, because of his medical issues and so many other things, his hearing is, is really bad and it's gotten worse. And uh, August, because of, because of other reasons to have a hearing aid, it's going to be this massive contraption. And so he really hates the idea because it's just one more thing that he thinks people are going to make fun of him. The kids are going to make fun of him having to wear this contraption Around his head, and so he resists and resists, but eventually they talk him down. They say, At least go and try it. At least go and try it. So he comes into the appointment uh, with the doctor and with his mom. He sees it and then he says, There's no way I'm putting that thing on. That thing is hideous. And said, Look, just just try it on. He puts it on. He's like, You can't even hear it. It doesn't, nothing's any different. He's like, I haven't turned it on yet. Right? But then He turns it on, and I'm going to read you what's in the novel. Uh, This is August, the the fifth grader speaking. He said, How can I describe what I heard when the doctor turned on my hearing aids or what I didn't hear? It's too hard to think of words. The ocean just wasn't living inside my head anymore. It was gone. I could hear clear sounds like shiny lights in my brain. It was like when you're in a room when one of the light bulbs in the ceiling isn't working but you don't realize how dark it is until someone changes the light bulb, and then you're like, whoa, it's so bright in here. I don't know if there's a word that means the same as bright in terms of hearing, but I wish I knew one because my ears were hearing brightly now. I I haven't, thankfully, by God's grace, struggled with hearing yet, knowing my my, my forefathers. That probably is in my future at some point. But I, I can imagine what that's like. He describes that so vividly to go from hearing the ocean in your ears to like being in a room that's dark and then all of a sudden you can see you can hear brightly for him hearing the ocean hearing the noise or being in a room that's dark was just the new was just the normal to him until it wasn't the normal was wrong it was not like it was supposed to be and yet he didn't know that it was weird a- amber and i both can't st- Can't stand clutter in the house, and if you've been to our house, you know that doesn't show because we have four kids, and there's just inevitably clutter. But every now and then, we tackle some space, and we say we are going to declutter this space. And when you declutter it, you're also like, "Whoa, this is so much better without all the junk in the way." You had no idea how bad it was until the problem was solved. In our passage for this morning, God speaks through a prophet named Haggai about how they have been living among ruins, living among the destroyed temple ruins in their backyard for so long. For 16 years they've been living this way, and it's become normal to them. And yet God is telling them this isn't normal. This may seem like you're normal, but it's not as it should be. This morning and for the month of January, I want to invite you to take a good an honest look at your life, and especially spiritually, your spiritual life, your walk with the Lord, and ask this question, like God was asking and telling the people during Haggai's time, are you living among rubble? Is there lights that are out in your room? Are you living with an ocean sound in your ears? Is there clutter in your house, so to speak? All these ways of saying, is something in your life, are you calling this normal, and yet God's saying, this is not how it's supposed to be? Are there places in your life that you have just accepted as this is, this is my normal? But in God's view, it's not. It's not as it should be. We're asking those questions, but especially around our priorities and about, around what, what's, what we should value the most, because that's what the book of Haggai is about. Now, when I, I told Nathan, our student pastor, about the idea for this series. He said, you know, one benefit is we'll probably be the only church around preaching the book of Haggai in the month of January. This doesn't make the the top ten most catchy books for a sermon series. And I'm okay with that. Uh, Here at Infinity, we are committed to what we call, what is known as the exposition of Scripture. We expose the Scripture to you. My job, I have no authority on my own, so my job is not to impose on you or the text, my own ideas and my thoughts, we expose the Scripture to you, expositional preaching. And we do that through a method primarily. Our steady diet is sequential exposition. That is, we walk through books of the Bible, just taking the next chapter as it comes, because that's how God chose to reveal Himself to us in books from start to finish. And we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed. So while John and Romans are some of my absolute favorite books of the Bible, And I could probably come up with sermons for decades in just those two books of the Bible. Our commitment is to give you the whole counsel of God's word, including the book of Haggai. And small prophets like it. And one of the benefits of preaching all the different genres is that you get a little different angle, a little different cut in different places of God's words. And I'll tell you, if you're not familiar with the prophets, they don't hold back punches. (laughs) They kind of call you on the carpet. And they, ta- they called God's people out for the ways that they were disobedient. And so if you're, it might be kind of a hard, hard to find if you haven't already found it. The book of Haggai is the third to last book in the Old Testament. So the last five books are Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So right there toward the end. And I believe as God uses this book in our lives, He may, he may call us out, maybe a little bit uncomfortable at times. But it is God's Word speaking into our lives and i think an especially poignant way here at the start of a new year to put the book of haggai in perspective a little bit just so you kind of know where we are this is this this these prophecies from the prophet haggai come 520 years before christ some 80 or 90 years before haggai spoke god had sent and allowed the, the nation of babylon to come into Israel into Judah and Jerusalem and destroy them to, to annihilate them because of their sins. So this temple, which we, if you were here in December, we spent in first week talking about Solomon building this elaborate, incredible temple and all these ornate things, God allowed in his own providence because of his people's sin, he allowed Babylon to come and destroy that temple. It was nothing but ruins. And many of the people of the nation were exiled, taken away from their homeland, sent into Babylon. But after a generation there in exile, God raises up another leader, King Cyrus, from the Persians to come and destroy Babylon. And he sends the new leader. Sends says, "Israelites, you are welcome to go back to your country if you want to. Not everybody does, but some do." And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah give us some of the stories about God's people coming back into the land and the process of rebuilding their nation, rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah, and before that, rebuilding the temple in the book of Ezra. In the year 536, we're in Ezra chapter 4. They've started rebuilding the temple, and they've laid the foundation, and they're celebrating, but the surrounding nations don't like this. They don't like that this nation that used to not be here now looks like they're starting to get organized and rebuilt, and so they come, and they oppose the work. They start threatening them and writing letters to try to stop them. So we read the very last verse of Ezra 424 says, uh, of that chapter. says, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem, stopped. It was the year 536 BC and this rebuilding campaign, this reunification process, this beginning again of a new nation comes to a screeching halt. It's a nation with very little funding. It's a nation with very uh, much smaller population. They don't think they can take it. They don't think they can overcome all the obstacles and so they stop working on the temple for 16 years for 16 years the people just live with the rubble in their backyards and decide now is not the time haggai chapter 1 verse 2 thus says the lord of hosts these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house yeah we know there's a big pile of rocks here and we know god's told us to do something about it But the time's not yet. We don't, we don't want to take care of this yet. Can we all admit that when we are deliberately disobedient to God, most of the time we have what we feel like is a really good reason for it? When we know things are supposed to be this way, and yet I'm going this other way, we do it for really good reasons in our own minds, right? The people of Israel had... Plenty of reasons to say the time has not yet come. In addition to all the nations around them opposing them and threatening them, threatening to wipe them out or bring in other armies, you keep building, we're going to destroy you. That was the threat. In addition to that, Haggai makes clear economically they were not doing well. Their crops, they were sowing a lot and not harvesting very much. There was inflation, it seems like. They were, they, it says that it was eating their money. They were earning wages only to put them in bags with holes in it. You make the money, it doesn't go very far. He's saying things that says they're, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're cold. He said this is not a time to take on some building project and build a new temple. We've got other things to worry about. We're just trying to feed our families here. Plus, that task would be an enormous task to take on. It's a big task. Building a temple would have required a lot of work. And they have less people than they did before. So, can't you see all these good, valid reasons to not do what God says? (laughs) Many times our disobedience has plenty of good reasons. And yet it is still disobedience. The time has not yet come, they say, to rebuild the house. And God questions them on that timing. He says the reality is it's not really about the timing. It's not really about all these issues. You just don't want to follow my commands. And so he begins to question their priorities. And he starts with a command that in a short two chapters is repeated five times in some variation. It, becomes, it comes up two times here in chapter one and three more times in chapter two. And it's the title for our series and my first invitation for you today. And that's this, consider your ways. Consider your ways. God invites them to take a good An honest look at their lives. Are there places that you're living with rubble in your life that God's called you to address and you've said, I don't care. I don't care, God. I want to live this way. And so you can just figure it out, God. Consider your ways. He says that in verse 5 and in verse 7. literally the Hebrew is, focus your heart on your ways. Draw attention to, consider, focus your heart on the paths that you take in life. As in, almost every time I can think of in the Bible, the heart in here is not the little organ pumping in your chest. He's talking about what do you really care about, the seat of your spiritual desires, the place of your spiritual perception. He says, are you blinded by your own life? Is your pathway, the the path that you're choosing, can you really see them for what they are or are you just floating through life kind of blind to what's before you? If we don't deliberately choose a path in life, we just kind of float, don't we? You just kind of do it the way you've always done it or the way the people before you did it. If we don't make intentional choices, we live an unexamined life, then it's like being on the lazy river. You're down a lazy river at the, at the uh, water parks. They're great for relaxing, right? You sit on the tube and eventually you make it all the way back around, right? But you know what you don't do? You don't make progress anywhere. You don't like move from one point to another. You just go in this lazy circle around and around. If we don't consider our paths, if we don't focus our attention, then we're just floating around on a little raft going in circles. Haggai, God says through Haggai, consider your ways. Focus your mind and your heart on the path you're taking in life. Are you aware? That in certain situations in your life, you, you take this path and you continue to come up to some fork, some decision that you have to make, and you always choose the path to the right, and it always ends you back up over here, right? Whether it be uh, the way you're, you're living at work and your home, substances you use, whatever else it may be, I come to this point where I've got to decide, go left or go right, and I always choose right and it always ends up over here. Are, are you doing that consciously, or is it just the floating along of your life, Haggai draws their attention. And says, "Focus, pay attention. What are you doing? How are you living your life?" The people say, "The time hasn't come." But God says, "Verse five. Now, right now, this moment, the year 520 B.C., or the year 2024, A.D. Now is the time to consider your ways. What better time than now, than the present, than the first Sunday of a new year, to take a spiritual spiritual EKG." You know how those tests work? You put those little probes all over your chest and they see how your heart's doing. And they show all these little monitors and graphs and all kinds of things about the blood flow and heart. How's your heart? At the beginning of a new year, consider your ways, consider the paths you're taking, consider your heart. What is your heart focused on? What paths are you taking? What are your priorities? What's most important to you? Have you answered that question? like out loud or in paper form? Have you deliberately answered the question, these are my priorities. This is what I'm going to focus on this year. What have you accomplished? What have you put your attention to in the last year or two or ten? What have you considered successful? What have you considered failures? What, what gets your best attention? Have you asked the question, what am I focused on? Have you considered your ways. New Year's probably a time where people think about things like New Year's resolutions, setting goals, setting markers to achieve, and that, those can be good and healthy. We mentioned some of that last week, but I, I wonder if in, beyond your, just your, your individual decisions, if you might consider instead of just resolutions, if you consider your routines and rhythms, your habits, who you are many times, much often, is the, the compilation of your habits, the way you choose to live your life on a weekly, daily, yearly basis. Some 1,500 years ago, during the monastic period, there was a a common practice of writing out a rule of life. Now, I don't generally encourage people to, to seclude themselves from society and to go live in a monastery for your whole lives, but this one practice they were pretty good at. They wrote out a rule of life, which was an intentional plan to say, this is how I'm going to live. The most famous was written out by a guy named Benedict who became known as Saint Benedict. So the rule of Saint Benedict was this uh, kind of command, this, this structure for how they're gonna choose to live. And many Christians for 1,500 years since then have benefited from their kind of intentionality. Here, here's one pastor's comment on it, uh, a guy named Jeremy Lindman. he wrote, he said, a rule of life is a way to begin with the end in mind, to envision a sustainable, thriving walk with the Lord in His Word, in prayer, in community, in our family, in our work, and then work backwards to set up commitments. It's not about a detailed to-do list that must be maintained. A rule of life instead gives you the opportunity to prayerfully discern what roles and responsibilities the Lord has given to you and to organize your life in the manner most conducive to spiritual growth and depth in Him. You could go on and read more about what a rule of life is, but my point here in this moment is just to say, are you choosing your life? Are you choosing the path forward? Is it deliberate? Are you considering your pathways or are you drifting? Prayerfully consider in this year, what, what is it you're going to focus on? Where are your priorities? Maybe mark out some time this week or this month, hours even to, to deliberately stop and ask those questions. What am I focusing on? What am I, where is my pathway Going. God invited this generation of returned exiles to examine their life, consider their ways, because He wanted to, them to see their pathway wasn't heading in a good way. The path they were on for the last 16 years of just ignoring the rubble in their lives was not healthy. So He says, Consider your ways. And then He says this, verses 3 and 4. He says, When the Lord, word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, This is what was wrong with their path. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Again, he says in the second half of verse 9, my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. There's where the rubber meets the road. You see, they have ignored the the pile of, of rubble, and they said, oh, it's just not time yet but somehow they have miraculously found the time to work on their own houses. So God says, hold on, this doesn't quite add up. God has asked them to rebuild the temple, and yet for 16 years they have ignored it and been building their own houses. The word translated, paneled by the ESV and most modern uh, English versions, apparently is actually a very hard word to translate. It's not used a whole lot in the Old Testament, so you don't get a whole lot of context. A few times it shows up in the temple, so it seems to represent kind of an ornate structure Not just any wood, but it's paneled. It's it's ornate. It's luxurious. So it might be that God was saying, not only are you ignoring building the temple and building your houses, but you're going luxurious on your houses. They're going all out. That might be the case, but it was also unlikely that a lot of them had a lot of wealth. It could just be a word that just means a roof. The King James takes it like that, a ceiling on their house. Either way, he's saying the house of God has no roof, has no ornate anything. And yet you've got a, a roof over your head. You've worked on your own stuff. Your house is in good shape. God's house is not. The point is clear that he is challenging their priorities. Consider your ways and what are you prioritizing? Are you prioritizing your stuff or the stuff of the Lord? Which house is your priority? Which house is your priority? Are you more focused on your house or God's house? Now, I want to be extra clear right here because we use this term God's house sometimes to refer to the physical space that we are standing in. And apparently some people have used the book of Haggai when their church really needs to build a new building to say, look, you're messing up and you need to give more money to the church to build a bigger building because like the people of Haggai, you've been ignoring the rubble. That is not the point of Haggai. So to make that extra clear to you, I want you to repeat after me. I don't do this very often. This building, this building is not, is not God's, house. God's house. Okay, I want to give you one more phrase to help you help you really clarify this. Repeat after me. We are, we are God's, house. God's house. Thank you. The people of God are the New Testament house of God. We are very thankful for this structure. We get to meet here rain or shine, and most of the time, hot or cold. Some of you are cold now. Other times you're hot now. We can't figure that out. But it's better than not having, the, having to live without a roof and to worship without a roof. We are thankful for this structure. And many of you know, if you've been coming to family meetings for the last year or two, we are praying about and working toward expanding our physical structure. These are good things. You know what they are? They are tools. They are vessels. They are parts of ministry, but they are not God's house. You, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, us together who have repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, we are God's house. So I can promise you, we will never say, give more money so we can build God's house. No, 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 no. no. You are God's house. We are investing in you. We are about people. Ministry is about people, not buildings. Can you care? Can you tell I kind of care about that? I'm sorry if I give you too much on this. Here's what I want you to know. The the building isn't the point. The building is not the application of the book of Haggai. And that's that they did need to build a building then. But again, it wasn't really about the building. It was about the condition of their hearts. And that translates 2,500 years ago just as much as it is today. God's people back then and many times we are so much more focused on serving ourselves than on serving God that we continue to prioritize things that benefit us instead of seeking to benefit the kingdom of God. That's what we mean when we ask, which house is your priority? Whose goal, whose passion, whose interest are you more concerned about? The things that serve your own interest or the things that serve the kingdom of God? Which house is your priority? God's people in Haggai were much more focused on their own selves rather than serving god because they were looking around and saying times are tight the people are attacking we got to make sure that we have a place to live in if i got to choose between serving god and serving myself i'm going to keep serving myself because i need a roof over my head and god's saying look at how that strategy is actually working out for you he says it isn't working you're trying to serve yourself and you're trying and and it's you're getting worse you're sowing seeds and there's no harvest you are Trying to make money, and yet it's like you're putting it in bags and it just falls out. He says, you're forgetting who's in charge of the harvest. The Lord is the Lord of the harvest. God says, I have sent a drought to you to try to get your attention, to stop paying attention to you just yourself, and instead to come and to worship God. What does it look like in New Testament days? Well, to understand that, what was the purpose of the temple? Again, it wasn't really about the building. It was about God dwelling with His people and identifying, these are my people. I am God. I am with my people. They are my people. And it was a way of offering sacrifices because they recognized their sin and that they didn't deserve to be with the Holy God. So the temple was a place of God's presence mediated by a sacrifice so they could be with the Holy God. If you go over to the New Testament, Jesus in John chapter 2 looks around in the temple and He says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. It's a reference to Herod's total reconstruction project would have taken place just before Jesus' day. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? John twelve two twenty one says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, all along it wasn't really about the building. It was about this is a way that God shows he is dwelling with his people which is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to be God with us. And when he came dwelling with us, he said all who follow me are my disciples. He says whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's not it's no longer about ethnicity and about gender or or free or slave. He says no no. If you follow me, you are part of my family. I identify with you, you are my people. And then the whole sacrificial thing? Yeah, he took care of that too, didn't he? When he died on the cross, paying for our sins, the veil was torn. No longer was there a separation. Sin had been paid for once and for all. We don't need a temple, physical temple, because we have the temple Jesus, who sent his spirit to live inside of us so that we would be the temple together. We are the house of God. Ephesians 2, we read a moment ago, you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We sang earlier, just the cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are God's house. We are the people of God. We are the dwelling place of God. So when we ask you, what is your priority? serving your house or serving God's house, another way you can say that is, are you about serving your own selfish desires or are you serving the people of God? Are you serving the church, not Infinity Church, although that's a part of this, of course, but are you serving the church, people of God, or are you serving your own selfish desires? What is more important to you, self or your brothers and sisters in the Lord? It is a piercing prophetic question. One time, sometimes it's hard to answer honestly. Do I really love myself more than others? Do I serve others more than myself? What are the motives for my actions? Who am I really trying to serve? How how might you consider in 2024 ways you can serve other people? You can love the people of God. If you are a Christian, you have been served by the one who had every right not to serve you. If you are a Christian, it's because you have believed that Jesus died for your sins and he served you. He saved you. And because you have been served, now we are given the opportunity to serve others. One beautiful nugget of truth I, I just noticed a couple days ago in verse 8. He, he gives a very simple command, right? He says in verse 7, to consider your ways. And then verse 8, he says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. He's like, real simple. You got all this rubble around you. We got to get to work. So go out and collect some firewood or some lumber, not firewood, not going to burn it, but structure, right? Now, if you knew back to Solomon how he built the temple, do you remember where he got his wood? He didn't just go out and get any old wood. Solomon was a man of enormous resource. He, spilled, he, he spared no expense. So he got the cedars of Lebanon, which was like saying this is the finest of fine wood. It was the best trees from a faraway nation that they had to pay a lot of money for to get them and get them all the way to where they, they built, used the best woods they could. What does God tell the people during the time of Haggai to do? He's like, look, just go right outside the city to the hills, chop down any tree you can find, and we're going to use it, and it'll be fine. It'll be enough. And, and as I was reading about the commentary of how all these, they would need all kinds of different size boards. They'd need little ones and big ones and thick ones and skinny ones. And the point was, everybody can participate. Kids can go pick up sticks. Men can work together, chop down big lumber. There is a job for everybody in building the house of God, and that is still true today. There are certain people who stand up on this stage and lead you in worship, but we all have a job in the body of Christ, do we not? 1 Corinthians 12 talks about all the different members of your body. There is a role for everybody in serving the people of God. If you are part of a discipleship group, if you are new to one or, or you've been a part of one, I'll tell you from experience, as one who facilitates that, I am not the most important person that shows up in that room sometimes. Sometimes it is somebody who walks in with just the right word of encouragement to bless a brother who is just struggling. Somebody who's been where you've been, and it's not me, and they show love in a way that I couldn't have done it. Or somebody that sends a message midweek that prays for me or encourages Listen, we are all there for one another if you're willing to serve the body of Christ. There's a job for everyone, and when we follow in that job, when we participate in God's people, He gives an incredible promise. You hear the verse, the end of verse eight. He says, "Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. Just, just go get some wood. Let's get going." And He says this, "That I may take pleasure in it. That I may take pleasure in it." He's saying, "This place, it's going to be my joy. I get to dwell with you. This is going to be the pleasure of God." God's people are his treasure and his delight. When we invest in one another, we're participating in the joy of the Lord. And he says that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God is going to rejoice. He is going to celebrate when we invest in one one another, when we serve one another, when we treasure others over self, when we treasure God over self, we're saying this is more valuable than me and that's about as countercultural as it gets and god will be glorified what does it look like for you to treasure god to honor god to choose his house over your own house consider your ways one more final connection i want you to see with the temple and jesus is that jesus said if if you destroy this house this temple i'm going to rebuild it in 3 days which was a, res- a reference to his resurrection you see, the temple was destroyed once back in some 600 years before Christ. It'd be destroyed after Christ, about 70 A.D. But Jesus says these are, just, these are just symbols of the greater thing that is to come, or was to come and has now already happened, is that Christ himself was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And you know what we had to do to rebuild it? Did we have to go out to the woods and get some, get some lumber? No. I had nothing to do with Jesus' resurrection, and neither did you. God sent his spirit and raised Jesus from the dead. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Sin is paid for. And that he fully accomplished your salvation by coming out of the grave. I see a little, a little hint of that in the way that people respond to the end of this chapter. They get the message at the end of chapter 1. We're only halfway through the book, but they already get the message. It says that Zerubbabel, that's why I made this one to read these names three times. I know it was hard, but she did awesome. It says that Zerubbabel and Joshua obeyed the voice of the Lord in verse 12. And then we read in verse 13 that Haggai promised them, I will be with you. And in verse 14, it tells you how they got there. How did they obey? It says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the remnant of all the people. God is in the business of stirring up dead hearts and bringing them to life. God is the one who rebuilt His temple. God is the one who resurrected the Son of God. God is the one who is building us His temple today. And God is the one who has promised that He will send His Son back and restore all things so that all things will be made right once more. The Lord stirs up spirits. God calls us to obedience and then He empowers us to obey. It is not our obedience that merits the presence of God. God calls us to obedience, and His very word, as it is spoken, has power to transform hearts. You are in church the first Sunday of 2024. I don't think that's an accident. I think God is at work in your heart in a way that He's saying, I want you to be sold out for me. I want you to be putting the people of God and the worship of God and the glory of God over yourself, and you are in church. Because you're seeking to obey the Lord. Do not miss that stirring of the Lord in your heart when you hear the word of God. Many times it is the very thing that empowers you to obey it because the Lord is the word, one who is stirring hearts, just like the Lord is the one who resurrected his son from the grave. Consider your ways. Whose house are you serving? You have been served. By the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and He invites you to follow Him. The Lord's Supper that we are going to take now at the conclusion of our service is a celebration of that very, very glorious reality. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of faith. It's a proclamation that says, I have believed in what Christ has done for me, and I receive this bread and I receive this cup in remembrance of. Therefore, this is a meal for all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's totally okay. We want to pray with you about that and for you. But we would ask that if, you do not, if you're not a believer, that you wouldn't take this meal because we don't want you to do something that doesn't match with your faith. And that's totally okay. But if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then we invite you to come to this table in just a moment as a way of remembering and of celebrating Christ's body broken for you and blood that was shed for you. So as we prepare our hearts now to receive this meal, let's remember the purpose of this ordinance. This will be on the screen for you. Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and drink this cup in remembrance of Him. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Christ calls the bread His body and the cup His blood, or the new covenant in His blood. He wants to teach us by, this, by His supper that as bread and drink sustain us in this temporal life, so His crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. The Lord's Supper declares to us that our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once for all. Those who should come to the Lord's table are those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desires more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. First.